Mets fans, prepare yourselves to get Metsmerized! Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Get Metsmerized podcast presented as always by MetsmerizedOnline.com. I'm your host, Sal Manzo, along with my co-host and MMO executive editor, Mike Mayer, also joined by friend of the show and associate MMO editor, Patrick Glynn. And we're joined once again by senior baseball writer of The Athletic, Keith Law. Keith, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Obviously, Keith, you put out your top 100 prospects list a few days ago. And before that, you did your top 20 Mets prospects list. So we had a couple of questions for you there. And I wanted to start talking a little bit about, uh, you know, the Mets seems like future all world catcher, uh, Francisco mm-hmm. Alvarez. Um, I know that you put in your piece that, you know, ceiling wise, you compared him to Mike Piazza. Obviously, you know, uh, that's a, a big shoes to fill and all that. But uh, I was wondering where you got that comparison from and, and how likely you think Alvarez could possibly at least offensively fill that potential, uh, you know, of that comparison, so to speak. Yeah, well, the comparison was mine. Uh, I've seen Alvarez play a couple of times. I feel pretty confident in the evaluation that he's going to be a way above average hitter, really for any position. But when you take a bat like that and you put it in a bat really who looks likely to produce kind of in every way that you'd want a hitter to produce, right? He's going to hit for average. It's going to be a lot of hard contact. He's going to hit for power and he should get on base at a pretty good clip. When you take a bat like that and you talk about someone who you you sort of attach it to someone who can stay behind the plate and maybe never be a great defensive catcher, but certainly be adequate, be good enough to stay at the position for the long term. which I think Piazza's defense, his defensive reputation is probably not really supported by the evidence. Piazza was not a great defensive catcher, but he was fine. The biggest thing was he wasn't really very good at throwing, but especially now, maybe even more so now than when Piazza was playing, that's not that important a part of a catcher's job. And I think Alvarez, first of all, he throws fine. And second, I think he's good enough at the other aspects of catching that there's there's really no thought or discussion to moving him to another position. So you're talking about a guy who could potentially hit across the board in all the categories that you want and stay behind the plate. I mean, to me, that is, that's an elite prospect. That's a guy who's probably going to be in the top 10, 12 prospects in all of baseball. Uh, And um, really the, I think the biggest thing that's could hold Alvarez back. And this is just true for all catchers. is just health. That position puts a ton of wear and tear on guys. And I have a lot of catchers fairly high on my top 100 realistically one of them's not going to pan out for some kind of health reason. Someone in there is going to suffer a back injury, a leg injury, a knee injury, something like that, because that's just the nature of the position. I can't tell you which one, but it's just the, if you look at the odds, you look at the historical evidence at that position, that one of those guys probably won't pan out for that reason. Absolutely. And I know Alvarez the other day, uh, you know, Mets uh, minor league camp started. He had said his goal was obviously to make the majors in 2022. I think that's, you know, great to hear. Obviously, don't know how realistic it is with, you know, the guys they have in front. But I wanted to ask you there if there's any realistic possibility he could see, you know, major league roster in 2022. I mean, maybe as a September call up, maybe it depends on the Mets situation, right? If they're contending and they think they'd actually be better off having him on the roster. Sure. I think he has to go on the 40 man after the season anyway. So there's like, at least that's not a major obstacle. Oh, I guess we'll see how service time rules and other things like that change in the, whenever we do get a new CBA, but 
he's not ready. I don't think he's ready to come up now. I doubt he'd be ready to come up in June. I don't think they'd be keen to rush him either. Let him go and destroy double A for a couple of months. And if he does that, move him up to triple A. There's just, he's not an older guy. This isn't a college guy who's, you know, pushing 24 now because the pandemic year. And suddenly you're saying, we got to get this guy in the majors as soon as possible. And that's a major difference between him and say, Adley Rutschman catcher, who was my number one overall prospect where, I argued that Orioles fans should be furious if he's not on the opening day roster. He's old enough. He's experienced enough. He's performed all the way up through AAA, and it's not like there's anybody blocking him. Alvarez, it's not really quite the same situation. I expect them to at least start slow with him. And if we see him in the majors at all, it would probably be at the very tail end of the year. Got it. And, you know, the last thing on him I wanted to ask you, obviously we talked about the offensive prowess and potential there. He talked about him a little bit defensively. As far as, you know, average, behind the plate and things like that. I was wondering, besides the arm, have you talked to any pitchers maybe he's worked with, like how he is as a receiver and working with pitchers? I'm just curious in that aspect, have you, if you've heard anything about him there as well. I, I, I have not talked to the pitcher specifically. I've talked to people in Mets player development who express no concerns about that. Awesome. Patrick, uh, I wanted to hear your thoughts a little bit too. Well, it, it just funny mentioning the majors and stuff. He has... He has a zips project projection for the majors in 2022. And it's like, and it projects him like as a major league average hitter in 2022, which I think is insane. Um, yeah. I, I don't think he's going to sniff the majors at all. Um, I mean, with James McCann and like Tom and Tomas Nito and they're like, you know, uh, Nick Mayer, a couple other guys on the depth chart. I think they would go to first before they would go to Francisco Alvarez. So I think something like really, really, really wrong or really, 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 really right happens uh, to see him in the majors. Like he said, it's I'm, I'm excited for him whenever he does come up, but it can take time. Absolutely. And Mike, I know you had uh, Alvarez at the top of your list as well, so I just wanted to get your thoughts more. What do you think um, his floor as a major leaguer could be, Mike? I know we talk a lot about ceiling, but let me hear what you think his floor could be for a minute. Yeah, I mean, I know Jacob and I talked about last week where we were trying to think of a more polished hitter at that age that we've seen in the Mets minor leagues, and we couldn't think of one. Uh, I think that allows his floor to be pretty high, um, even at the major league level. And like um, Patrick was talking about, Van Grass projected him to be an uh, average major league hitter right now at 20. So, I mean, I think, I mean, worst case scenario, I mean, I think the type of like production they got from Wilson Ramos, maybe when he was with the Mets. I mean, I, I think that's his type of floor. I, like Keith said, he's a top 10 prospect in baseball. So that type of guy is generally going to have a high floor. And I think, I mean, Wilson Ramos had some pretty decent years in the big league. So I, I, I don't think that's a bad floor for him. And I think that's still a ton of value. But yeah, I, I, think, I think there's just too much offensive potential from him that he's going to end up there. I, I think you're going to have a guy that's a starting major league catcher for quite a while. And now that we have the DH and or we're going to have the DH in the national league, the Mets can kind of lean on that to try to alleviate some of those injury possibilities. So, yeah, I, I think I, I know Mets fans. I mean, they talk about a med Rosario or even going back far, the lastings millage, Fernando Martinez, all these guys that were highly rated and, you try not to get um, too excited, but I think look, Francisco Alvarez, I think has a higher floor than any of those guys had. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's a completely different animal. And I think 
he is a guy that we're going to see soon, even with McCann's contract. Interesting. You know, uh, it's exciting stuff you know, as far as with, uh, you know, pro- catching prospect. Haven't had that with the Mets for a long time. At least I can't remember. And I wanted to move on from Alvarez, Keith. And I wanted to talk to you a little about Ronnie Mauricio. Um, specifically, uh, you noted that Mauricio isn't likely to stay at shortstop long term. So I was wondering where you think he would end up defensively. And are you concerned that his lack of ability to get on base right now? I know you have him ranked as the number two Mex prospect behind or in front of right behind Brett Beatty. So I just wanted to talk to you a little about Mauricio and, you know, kind of what you think is him is, is his long-term future. I think the most likely thing right now is they'll probably, they would probably move him to third or to second um, and see how it looks. And yeah, there's some chance that he ends up in the outfield. I don't think that's out of the question. Um, I think you try to keep him on the dirt. He is not you're so unathletic that I think there's no chance or that there's no chance that he stays in the infield. This is not also a situation where I think he's just going to be too big to stay on the infield. He's just not very good at shortstop. He's really erratic. And it's guys who look like that, even at age 20 at shortstop generally don't stay at the position. They generally don't improve enough. It is less a function of, you know, it's not the sort of thing that I, Typically, you would typically see player development. Oh, we can work on his, maybe his first step a little bit or his actions. His instincts are not great. His hands really aren't great. And he's just wildly inconsistent. And that's not a position where teams are really willing to tolerate that. Generally, contending teams are looking for a guy who's a plus defender at shortstop. He's never going to be that. I like the bat. I like the bat speed quite a bit. I actually think he's a guy who gets away with some stuff at the plate right now because his hands, his wrists especially, are so quick. I am not terribly concerned with the lack of on-base skill right now because he's 20. He was young for, really, he was young for high A and they even bumped him up to double A at the very, very tail end of the season. Uh, and because he's not striking out excessively. If he were not getting on base and then also striking out you know, 20, 29 or more percent of the times, plenty of prospects, guys who were you know high draft picks or otherwise uh, touted by their organizations who are striking out 30% of the time. He's not doing that. So he's not totally undisciplined. That said, if this guy ever posts a 350 on base percentage in the big leagues, I'd be kind of surprised. He's probably not going to be that kind of hitter. I think he'll be high average, low walks, but high contact and get to quite a bit of power because as I said, the looseness in those rests. And if he stays on the infield, that gives him a chance to be an above average regular, possibly a star. Interesting. And, you know, to, one more thing from Mauricio. I know you had him, uh, like I said, ranked slightly ahead of Brett Beatty, not only in the Mets ranks, but also in your top 100 rankings. I was wondering just what the thought process is there is, you know, why you have Mauricio ranked ahead of, of Beatty. And if you think one has a higher ceiling than the other or, or, you know, better floor, just wondering, you know, the thought process there real quick. Well, you know, Beatty is, what is he, a year-ish older? He is a corner guy for sure. Beatty has done a lot of great work. You know, I give him a lot of credit for working on his body, maintaining his conditioning. When folks saw him in high school, I saw him in high school uh, in February of 2019 and thought he was athletic enough to potentially play third base, but just looking at the frame um, and he was 19, he was a 19 and a half year old high school senior. So he was already 19 when I saw him. And the thought was the fear I would say was, man, this guy's going to outgrow third base pretty quickly just because he's going to bulk up. And he hasn't done that, actually. I thought he was trimmer. I thought he had, uh, when I saw him multiple times in 2021, I saw him when Brooklyn came through here in Wilmington and I saw him again in fall league. And I thought, oh, this is actually pretty good. The two years later, he has not gotten bigger and he looked uh, leaner um, without costing himself strength, certainly. Uh, And 
just moved better. He was looked a little more agile at third base. Now he's still going to be big. That's we're not getting away from that. When he's 24, 25, will he end up moving off third base? That's possible. It's also possible that they'll have someone else who's a better defender at third base who they choose to put at the position and that bumps him over. And Brett Beatty as a first baseman, still a very good prospect, but obviously not the same kind of value as when a guy plays a skill position, something up the middle or, or potentially third base. Whereas Mauricio has a better, not only is a year younger, but has a better chance to play some kind of skill position somewhere on the diamond. And so those two reasons have me put Mauricio very slightly ahead. I think they were maybe what, two, three spots apart on the top 100. So that is a very fine distinction. If somebody wants to make the argument that Beatty should have been higher, I'm not pushing back. Anybody who's that close on the list, I'm saying this is, it's not a coin flip. I do think about it a little bit more than that, but they're really close. And it's not worth arguing over small distinctions like that to the rankings. Absolutely. And Mike, I just want to get your thoughts for a couple of minutes there as well. Yeah, I know that uh, Mauricio, when he was in winter ball, they had him take um, some grounders at third and second before like the games and stuff when they're in practicing. And then they actually, to Keith's point, he was bad enough defensively in winter ball that he kind of lost playing time there at shortstop. So yeah, he's been erratic there. So I think the Mets are going to look at other spots. Um, And I know talking to someone recently in the Mets organization that he's going to see at least some time in the outfield during spring camp, which will be something to keep an eye on. Vientos and Beatty will too, but they both saw some time in the outfield last year. And that was kind of getting them out there, but also Vientos and Beatty were on the same team after Beatty got a promotion. So they wanted to make sure both of those guys were getting as many at bats as possible. From what I saw, I thought Beatty was fine in the outfield. He's athletic enough. Like law said, he's done a good job getting himself into a good, good shape. And I think he's a passable left or right fielder. Vientos, not so much. I think Vientos is really third base or first base with the likely, I think it's more likely at this point, first base, but I, the Mets have, I mean, the Mets have used guys at third recently that they're more worried about their offense anyway. So, I mean, he would be that type of guy. So, yeah, I think once all of those guys get into camp, obviously, Vientos and Mauricio can't right now because they're on the 40-man roster. But it'll be interesting to see where exactly some of those guys play in camp once they're able to get there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, interesting, the versatility, even at that level, if they're, you know, um, making them, you know, go from the infield to the outfield, you know, whatever you can do, I guess, to uh, to break big league camp and help the team. I like that. But, uh, you know, moving on from those guys, Keith, we saw that, you know, I think a lot of Mets fans are probably pleasantly surprised when you listed Alex Ramirez 100th overall in your, your prospect list. And I was wondering just, you know, what the process was of having him on there and, you know, uh, you know, kind of what you, you think he could be. Well, I mean, if you just, let me take a step back for a second because you just you ask each time, what's the process? What's the process? The process is the same for all of the players and for listeners who, who haven't, aren't familiar with my work. You know, I go out and see players as much as possible. I have been evaluating players now for 20 years, going back to my time with the Blue Jays. So whenever I can, I see players in person. I get video. I get video from teams. I get video from some software I have. There's quite a bit of video available just freely online too, and I'm more than happy to look at that. Um, I love it when people post a video that they shoot of games. Um, and so I go through all of that and also then speak to people in player development for all 30 clubs and then speak to scouts who, who evaluate other organizations than their own. 
And obviously I spent some time going through all the available data, public data, again, some stuff that I am able to get from teams as well. Put all of that together and then develop a you know first cut of my top 100 that I then circulate to some people in front offices who are who try to keep their finger kind of on the pulse of the miners as well and get their feedback and you know, often make pretty substantial changes to the top 100 based on feedback from teams. And so in the case of Ramirez, I have not seen him personally yet, but I've had notes on him for a long time since the Mets first signed him. I spoke to scouts who saw him, one of whom was particularly adamant, hey, run this guy up your board. He's got a chance to be a superstar. The ball comes off his bat very differently, especially for an 18-year-old, very little experience, still hasn't even begun to fill out. This guy's got a really, really high ceiling. And I will say, when I do the very tail end of the top 100, too, often what I am looking at at that point, the more, the more certain guys, they're already on the list. So in that range between, say, 90 and what would be maybe 120 or so, I'm often choosing between guys who have pretty, pretty good floors, not a whole lot of ceiling, though. If they had more ceiling, they would be much higher on the list. And guys like Ramirez, who are more like lottery tickets. It probably overstates the risk, at least, but very high ceiling, but more uncertainty, far more uncertainty, right? There's always a chance Ramirez gets out to full season, but uh, to high A this year at 19, and just flops. Yeah, it absolutely could. I would rather have the end of my top 100 have a few more guys who have chances to be stars, guys who have really high upside. And if I'm giving up a little bit of floor in that scenario, I'm okay with that. It's a personal philosophy. I think the list is more useful to readers if I'm doing that. That's why a guy like Stephen Kwan, who's in Cleveland system, was in the just missed list because he's a left fielder and he's a little bit older. I think he can really, really hit. I feel very good that Stephen Kwan will have a decent major league career, even if it's just as an extra guy or a second division starter, because he's going to hit enough. But as a left fielder, not even a great left fielder, his ceiling is just looking, say, in terms of war or whatever measure of total value you want to have. His ceiling is kind of capped by that. And at his age, he's not likely to get a whole lot better. So just to pick one example from the just miss list to compare to Ramirez, I'd much rather have much rather have a player like Ramirez on the back of the 100. I think if I were in a trade situation uh, and I were a rebuilding club, I would much rather have Ramirez. And again, I just think it's more valuable to readers to highlight the Ramirez type of player over the Quan type of player. Awesome. That's really interesting. Mike, uh, why don't you go give us a comment, please, on that? Yeah, I mean, we talked about Ramirez a little bit um, on the last podcast, too, how impressed the Mets themselves were by him. He came to spring camp and they weren't quite sure where he was going to play or what he was going to do this year in terms of productivity. But he, he was so good in minor league camp that he forced his way onto the St. Lucie roster and did it very early in the season. I haven't seen him in person yet, just like Keith hasn't, but I talked to a bunch of people in St. Lucie and that, yeah, it's the, I mean, mirroring what he said, it's the same thing. It's his crack of the bat stood out completely different than a bunch of the other guys. And we're talking about someone who played the entire year at 18 and a lot of guys in that league were 19, 20, 21. So for him to stand out like that, yeah, the raw tools are there. And we're talking about a guy that's going to stick most likely in center field. He's a plus def- a chance to be a plus defensive center fielder. So that already gives you a good ceiling right there. And to add into what he has potential for offensively. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I was just surprised in general with Keith having him there just because no one else had put him in a spot yet but I mean obviously 
I think what Keith was saying makes a lot of sense for the back end of a hundred to kind of plug those type of guys with the high ceiling rather than um, guys with high floors. Yeah, no. And Keith, uh, so, sorry, Sal. I, I was just going to ask um, Keith something about his, his process and, and Mike, I know you kind of have a process as well when evaluating these guys, but you've mentioned like a positionality, like you mentioned, um, you know, with Ramirez being a potential, being a plus center fielder, like he might have more value over like a left fielder. Who's like a surefire, pretty good hitter. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned earlier about like catchers as well. So there are positions that you certainly value. Like if, if they can produce offensively at those positions and hold their own defensively, you value them over say a first baseman with a lot of power or something like that. Yep. I think it's absolutely accurate because I think that's two things. One is we have a pretty, the widely accepted public model that you see in the two major wins above replacement calculations that do ascribe higher value to players who play what I, again, what I call the skill positions, right? The four in the middle of the diamond plus third base, right? You just get a boost to your value automatically simply by virtue of playing that position. You may not play it well, and maybe you lose some value after that, but if you can stay at the position, you get a boost to that value. Also, I know that's how teams look at players too. They absolutely value players differently if they show either one that they can play one of those positions or two even if they look at say a ronnie mauricio okay he's not a shortstop but where is he moving to what are the odds that he moves from shortstop all the way down the defensive spectrum and ends up saying left field not very high so they'll take up they will give a little bit higher value now to a player who plays one of those skill positions even if they understand that he's not actually going to stay there forever very few guys end up moving from shortstop all the way down to say left field or first base. Yeah. And, and I, I see you like, like you described the Mets as a top heavy system as well. And, and mm-hmm. just in reading who, who, you know, your top 20 Mets prospect list, it seems like the Mets are, are lacking in that area a little bit of those skill position guys of those, you know, premium potential top end, like shortstop, second baseman, center fielders, and mm-hmm. where they have, it seems like they have a lot of potential on like, corner outfielders and you know obviously in pitching as well but yep. yeah it just seems like the Mets are missing a lot of the skill positions that really teams highly value at the major league level. yeah I think that some of that also also has been a function of their draft strategy the last couple of years which I have liked but they have gone really gone all in on just a couple of guys towards the top of the draft like the Matt Allen year where that's basically we're going to give everything we have left in the pool to this one pitcher who we think is you know he was a first round talent he still has very high upside hopefully we'll see him back you know maybe he makes 15 starts or so this year as they ease him back from Tommy John surgery um, but you know when you do that you're taking fewer flyers on guys you know after the fourth round who or even after the 10th round say where you're taking a shot on a maybe further away high school player you're betting on some athleticism for example you could contrast that to what atlanta's done in some of their recent drafts where they've spread the money around on far more players so they have very they haven't taken anybody like a matt allen really in the last couple of drafts but they've spread it around and gotten more players in total so nobody who's you know those drafts have not produced say a second, third, fifth round pick who might be a top 100 guy right now, but they have more depth in some of those skill positions. That's really been their strategy too. When they go after some of these high school players later is we'll take athletes who might play a skill position or they're taking bets on some high school arms, which, you know, which I I will say it's one part of Atlanta's philosophy. I really like is we're not taking the high school arm in the first round, but we'll absolutely overpay for some high school arms later on. Yeah. And then I, I, it also, I know it has to do with, 
kind of the Mets, the Mets trading strategy as well. The last yeah. three, four years as well, where, you know, they're trading away Kellenic, they're trading away Crow Armstrong and they're trading away Jimenez. They're trading away, uh, you know, a couple other guys who, who play those skill positions as well. And they got to know some of those trades come from bad philosophy. Some of them come from good one, but yep. it just seems like organizationally, it really kind of, I guess then comes with the conclusion where they become so top heavy. Yes, I think it's, that's the number one reason. I would argue the Mets have been a top five drafting organization in the last 10 years, and that might even be still underrating them. I think they've been extraordinarily productive. They've hit on a pretty good percentage, very high percentage of their first-round picks. They found good value with some later picks as well. The unfortunate part is many of those players will end up being very good major leaguers for other organizations. That sucks. You know, there's still like... We're, you know, it's, people are going to talk about the Lindor trade and Rosario was kind of better for Cleveland last year. He wasn't great. He may never be the prospect. I mean, there may never be the major league player I thought he was going to be. You know who turns out might be the best player in that whole deal? Like, keep an eye on Isaiah Green. He looks really good. He's extremely promising. If we get a full season out of him this year, he's going to run up everybody's rankings. That one's going to sting. And that was another one of those players the Mets found him. The Mets just did a better job, I think, than any other club in that draft. That was the pandemic year, but they had good information. They had a scout who really knew the player particularly well and was able to stay on top of him and follow him even during the lockdown. And so they were able to, to get the player. I think they valued him higher, more highly than anybody else did. And then once the draft came and went, it was clear, oh, the Mets actually, they did a really good job. Kind of like the Red Sox with Nick York. They just had better info because they had the right people in the right places. And obviously now he's with Cleveland, but I would add him to the pile you're talking about of guys who they justify the Mets drafting approach. Unfortunately, he's going to be probably good for somebody else. <laughs> That's interesting. And with that being said, just as far as, you know, putting a bow on, on our prospect talk, I was wondering, Keith, which pros, uh, prospect in the Mets system do you think is closest to helping the major league team on a consistent basis? I was and, curious about that. Well, there's not a lot, right? Like it's hard to see, who's going to um, who's going to help this major league club, like say this year, right? Because they're this major league roster is actually pretty well set. I'm actually going to pull up my Mets actual, what I actually wrote on them. So I don't contradict myself because um, <laughs> I wrote all this stuff a while ago. Um, yeah. I said quite possibly nobody. Good. I quoted myself correctly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could see, right. So like I mentioned, and I apologize to folks who already seen what I wrote at the athletic, but Khalil Lee and Nick Plummer, could end up getting some outfield reps, certainly if there's an injury somewhere. Neither, neither one of them is going to be a starter unless there is an injury. But you could see those guys doing something in the big leagues for them, maybe helping in a bench role or coming up and playing for a couple of weeks before because somebody gets hurt. Beyond those guys, I think like if we're just talking about the premium guys, Vientos is probably the most likely to come up and have some kind of impact at the major league level. Obviously, he's level-wise, he's a little bit ahead of the big three who spent the bulk of last year in Brooklyn. I think pretty good chance we see him. I'm also really keeping an eye on Mike Vassell, who, you know, obviously people in the baseball world have been tracking this guy since he was a junior in high school. I saw him this spring at Virginia. He was not impressive. Virginia did what they did, what they do. They screwed up his delivery. They cost him a lot of velocity. They cost him, I think, a little bit of command. The Mets get him. They just de-Virginiaize his delivery. And suddenly by, you know, summer instructs, he's picked up like a grade and a half of velocity. And as a result, his arms easier, faster. The curveball picks up. We'll see how they develop him. If they keep him a starter, which I would, maybe he doesn't move super fast. He could be two years to the majors in the starter role. 
I also wonder if they would say, hey, we have a short-term need for some relievers. Do we take a guy who we still believe is a long-term starter and try to fast-track him so that we get some bullpen help in the short term? And then you try to stretch Vassal out like it's a long man or a swing guy or have him make some spot starts towards the end of the year. He's really interesting. I think I called him my sleeper for the Mets system. And I think part of it, it's unusual to have a lot of my sleepers are high school kids or international free agents who signed because they're younger, right? You could just see a wider variance in potential outcomes. They could make the big leap. Vassal's unusual. He'll be 22 this year. He was a first rounder, should have been a first rounder out of high school. His dad decided to take him out of the draft, which was a terrible idea. Costs Vassal probably $2 million, goes to college, gets worse, comes out in pro ball. Oh, wait, hold on. This is the guy we thought he was three years ago. It's pretty interesting. Mets should be very, very excited about that one. And, you know, potentially add him to the list of great finds by the Mets scouting staff in the draft. Interesting. Mike, I think you had something to uh, add as well. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about guys that help this year. Um, Obviously it's in a different type of role and it doesn't provide as much value as like an outfielder or a starting pitcher. But I think someone we absolutely see is uh, Eric Orsi. Um, their fifth round pick a couple of years ago. I think he's a guy with his fastball and his splitter. Um, I think they're both major league pitchers right now. So I, th- I think this is a guy, he's not on the 40 man roster. They have some, they have some spots there that they can make room. I, I think he's a guy that has swing and miss stuff through the roof. I think he's, he's easily the best reliever in the Mets farm system. Uh, we'll see what they do for agency. They still have a couple of spots there that they could, do but I think I think he's a guy we see this year and I think he's a guy that has probably a pretty solid major league career as a reliever and yeah I mean that that's pretty good value out of a short draft like that to get someone that in a short time can come right to the big league so I think for a guy that just this year that probably plays in the most games or has the most effect on the Mets season it, it could be a guy like Eric Orsi. that's where I see the biggest need at the Mets major league level right now is in the bullpen. Like he mentioned, like they're generally, they're pretty set. And I think if they are going to add anything else offensively or something like that, it'll be through free agency. I think that as well with the bullpen outside of Orzi, I know that Keith, you had mentioned Vassal as well. Are there any other arms in the system, Keith, that you think that the Mets might bring up as like that you think might be able to contribute in the bullpen? Cause that's probably where their biggest need is right now. Yeah, I had Orzi, Orzi 14th on my list. Actually, I wasn't even sure if it was Orz, Orzi, Orzo, right? No, it's a pasta. Sorry, that's definitely not him. <laughs> uh, yeah, I couldn't see. I'm looking back through my list just to make sure I'm not forgetting anyone. Now, there may be a, you know, a double A arm I just didn't have on the list, right? Because I didn't see him, didn't have notes on him. It could be somebody like that. But of their guys who are prospects, of their top 20, 25 or so guys, I don't think anyone else is a potential fast track guy. It sounds like they're going to try to stretch Christian Scott out to make him a starter, which I agree with. I think he really could. Um, Carson Seymour, who's who's got an unbelievable arm. That guy's got to throw strikes before we can even talk about him getting to double a, let alone getting to the majors. Mm, I, I don't think so. I, you know, I would defer to you guys if there's somebody beyond that, who's just pure reliever, not a big prospect who could help, but I don't see that unless they convert. I don't see a name on my own list here unless they were to convert someone to a bullpen role. And even Vasil, I'm not saying they will do that. I just, he's so different, right? He's a 22 this year, but it's almost kind of like he's 19 because they've turned back the 
can you roll back an odometer on a pitcher? I don't think it works that way, but he's like, it's like that, right? They've just, they're starting over with him. He's older and obviously he's got some wear and tear on his arm from pitching in college, but developmentally it's like the last three years didn't happen. Yeah. Speaking in terms of just like straight relievers that are like close to the big leagues, I think Colin Holderman is a guy that I saw pitching double A this year. He was a starter for a while in the Mets system and just had injury after injury. He missed a ton of time, but when I saw him in Binghamton, he was 97, 98, hit 99, pretty decent slider. He went and pitched in the Arizona Fall League and was all right there. Command is an issue there, but he's the type of guy I think we at least probably see in the Mets bullpen at some point this year. Brian Matoya is another one. He went Arizona Fall League and was posting ridiculous spin rates on his curveball, getting a ton of swing and misses on the pitch too, but also showed practically zero command i mean those two are the guys that i would kind of look forward this year that'll be in syracuse at some point i'll probably get a shot in the mets bullpen a lot of arms it seems like there's a lot bigger minor league core with the mets than i i can remember over the last decade or so so this should all be you know really interesting and hopefully these dudes uh come up sooner rather than later can help the big league club you know get to where they want to get to i wanted to you know move on from the the prospect talk and unfortunately did want to talk a little bit about matt harvey and the tyler scabs testimony that happened last week during his trial and even more after the fact terry collins the former mets manager decided to to share a pretty intimate story on sny that following night about harvey and it was kind of divulging a lot and things that you know maybe shouldn't have been brought to light by someone that wasn't Harvey. Keith, I was just wondering if you were surprised by Terry's comments, you know, telling that story. And just in general, you know, we comment a little bit about on just kind of, you know, the the state of, of uh, you know, Matt Harvey and where things have gone, I guess, you know, where, where we stand and kind of go from there. I, the only thing I'll say is, is Collins was completely out of line. He should have declined to talk about this at all. He shared information that, yeah, there's certainly no reason to think that Matt Harvey said he could share. I have seen people who know these issues better questioning whether this was maybe an EAP violation, depending on who Harvey had shared some of his, what is essentially private medical information. Who did he share that with in the organization? I certainly hope at the very least this means Terry Collins never gets another managerial job again because he's just eroded any possibility that anyone could trust him uh, in such a position of authority. Other than that, I'll be honest, I have not followed much of the story. I only really found out about the Matt Harvey stuff because the Collins comment hit my timeline and because somebody reached out privately and said, do you see what Terry Collins did? And then I went and followed it. And that was, yeah, that's appalling. And, you know, I don't know what, I don't know that there's really a sanction to put on Collins right now. I wish more people were, would stop sharing that video kind of uncritically. And we even saw Bill Madden, the strike breaker, decide to weigh in on this. And of course he was defending Terry Collins, where it's pretty clear Collins at, at the very least breached some trust. And like I said, should not be put in any kind of position of authority over players again. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think Terry's baseball tenure at the end of the Mets made sure he probably will never manage again, but this is going to, you know, be the nail in the coffin <laughs> there. I completely agree with you. It's just, it's really sad, uh, you know, from, from where he was, how he came up and everything, you know, that's kind of transpired. You just, all I can say is you know, we, we wish him the best. Hopefully he can, you know, get himself on track and, and live a, a good life and 
just, uh, you know, when, when stuff happens to you and you trust people, you should really keep it to yourself unless, you know, people that were involved uh, want you to share stuff and, you know, kind of want to move on from there. And another uh, positive topic we can transition to is the lockout. We are uh, almost 80 days in now. Kitchers and uh, pitchers and catchers should have reported. We know spring training got delayed to at least March 5th. No, duh. And both sides still seem, you know, far apart. So, Keith, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit and see, do you think now at this point we're going to this is going to cut into the regular season? And how frustrating is it to see really the owners continue, in my opinion, acting, you know, during bad faith during this entire negotiating process? I don't know what this is going to mean for the regular season. I'm not optimistic, but I would defer to folks who are like Evan Drellich, who's, who's covering this more directly. You know, the owners are the owners, you know, just to be clear, and I know you guys know this for everyone listening, the owners locked the players out. The owners made a choice to delay the start of spring training. This is all on the owners. The players are ready and willing to report because they would play under the expired CBA without the competitive balance tax. So it'd be pretty favorable for the players to return to play right now. Uh, if if they were able to report to spring training and if the major league season were to start on time, the players would be ready and quite willing to play under those conditions. Yeah, as for whether the regular season will not start on time, I don't think we've reached that point yet. Players would probably need about three weeks minimum of spring training to be able to start the season on time. We're not quite there yet. Like I said, I'm not optimistic. The owners seem to be digging in their heels over a pretty trivial amount of money and some philosophical stances that I just find it very hard to reconcile myself to. I mean, I've, I would never have said I was necessarily just a blanket pro player when talking about labor disputes between the players and the owners in this one, I just see very little merit at all in the owner's positions, at least their publicly stated positions. And I agree. I do not think that they are negotiating in good faith at all. I think the move to go try to get a federal mediator was entirely a publicity ploy. Um, they have barely even responded to player offers. They have taken weeks to make offers to the players. Recently, the players made another offer and the owners said, yeah, we're not going to counter that. Like, I'm sorry. That's, I don't think that qualifies as good faith negotiating. And uh, you know, for folks who don't follow Eugene Friedman on Twitter, F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N, I had him on my podcast last week, and he is not involved in this particular labor dispute, but he is a union labor lawyer for the Air Traffic Controllers Association. And he helped talk through a bunch of these issues with me, and including explaining what it really means to negotiate in good faith or not do so in good faith. And I personally found that helpful. I have no background in this whatsoever. And so I found it useful even just to make sure I'm using correct language sometimes when trying to describe what I see going on, trying to interpret what we're hearing from the writers who are actually covering this more directly. I just find it very funny that everything's gone basically at a sales snail's pace since December 2nd or whatever mm -hmm. it is. And I just keep going back to, you know, what Rob Manford said, we're, you know, instituting a lockout because we think this is the quickest way to getting a deal done. And it's just, this doesn't seem very fast. There's no, no, uh, no urgency whatsoever. You know, um, you know, 15 minute meetings every couple of weeks, so to speak. It's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, you know, we're as fans, we continue to suffer. We're the ones that get put in the middle. You know, I, it's, uh, it's really crazy. And Mike, I wanted to, I think you had a, a comment as well. I'd planned on plugging the uh, podcast that law did with, because I listened to it. And I think he did a really good job of kind of explaining a, what you're, talking about with good faith and how they're supposed to be negotiating in good faith and even i mean even if you weren't choosing a side 
in the nego- in just the terms of it, whether you're talking arbitration or free agency, it would be nuts to create to look at how this has happened and be anything but on the player's side because they did institute the owners instituted the lockout, then didn't contact the players for 42 days, and then tried to bring in a mediator like he said, as a publicity ploy. Like Friedman said, it would take a couple of weeks just for that mediator to get up on what's going on with the negotiations, and then he would still have to work on the negotiations. So that would have just slowed it down potentially even more. And then the owners decided that they were going to push back the spring training games, and the MLBPA didn't they didn't have to again they said in their statement MLB announced today that it must postpone the start of spring training games this is false nothing requires the league to delay the start of spring training much like nothing required the league's decision to implement the lockout in the first place the owners are continuously dragging their feet on this and yeah I it's I mean it's frustrating to see that the players keep giving a little bit, keep giving a little bit, and they're trying to at least negotiate in good faith. But we have the owners that, like you said, are just dug in and essentially at this point just seem to be willing to lose games, which their standpoint doesn't make any sense because of they've lost games in 2022. They lost a lot of fans in the seats last year. You would think they wouldn't want to potentially lose any games at all this season. So, and like Keith mentioned, and it's been mentioned by Evan Drellick, Jeff Passan, a bunch of writers. These are, in the grand scheme of it, very trivial amounts of money on the owner's end that they are potentially missing games for. Well, it's about the it's about the perception of the power too, right? It's like, that's kind of largely what it seems like baseball CBAs have been based on. Is that like, is the, is the owners continuously getting more and more and more power I mean, like Keith mentioned with the with the potential of getting a mediator, like it seemed like most people who have been looking at the CBA for the last two months about negotiations about the CBA is that like a lot of what MLB does is a public relations play. I don't know, maybe five years ago, although a lot of us are on social media, we're all talking about it and we are we're all kind of aware about it. But like it seems like this time, like there are a lot of players who are clearly banded together on social media in this. And there's people like us who are like getting on a podcast and talking about it all. And like, we all generally share pretty similar sentiments on this all, but it just seems like the owners still think that players are bluffing. It seems like they, they think that eventually the players are going to give in because to, to be fair to the owners, it's typically what the players have done, but it's like, it seems totally different now. It seems like the players are really, really in this for the long haul, which they've been saying from the beginning, but now it's actually showing in action. So it's interesting now that next week MLB is like, all right, we'll negotiate every day. It seems like a lot of owners are actually going to go to the meetings. I don't know if it'll still be in good faith, but it seems like they're getting slightly more serious about it. But the timeline of how that goes, who knows? But it really all just seems like it's like, it's like the MLB itself is like still just predicated on just the perception of the power. And if like, like a lot of what they're asking for is reasonable, it doesn't matter in MLB's eyes if it's reasonable if the players get what they want, then really the owners are just thinking like, all right, well, we don't have as much power or the perception of the power that we used to have. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, even that timeline, like you're talking about, like we've talked about, is just not in good faith at all. They instituted the lockout, waited forever to talk. Keith said, 
they didn't even bring back a counter proposal. And now all of a sudden that games we're getting close to games getting threatening. Now the owner's like, yeah, let's just meet every day. And they're the ones that put that out there too. So again, that's another public perception that, Oh, the owners are putting this out there that we're going to meet every day. So they're the ones that are pushing this and trying to really get it done. And just from a point of obviously you're frustrated chance of not seeing games, but you're also frustrated from the point that the billionaire owners that are getting a bigger piece of the pie right now than they should compared to the players are also pushing this out publicly the way that they are. Yeah, no. And that's, that's not a surprise though. This is how they do it. You know, they always leak stuff out and, and you know, try to, to play pit sides through the media. That's kind of, it seems how it's always been even going back to especially a couple of years ago, 2020 season, they tried to, you know, negotiate to what they want to do to play it's tough, man. It's tough here in the owners plead poverty when again, they lost games the last couple of years and they're still, you know, willing to lose more now. Um, you know, they had 40 something days to uh, negotiate. Now all of a sudden, like you said, three weeks till uh, the season get delayed. Now we're going to do stuff every day, but um, you know, it's just, They'll get something done, but we always lose. It feels like as fans, um, because the sport just gets dragged through the mud through it. And I'm someone we've talked about just worried about the long term, um, you know, the longevity of the sport with what this will do to it. But hopefully, we get baseball. I'm just sick of talk, sick of talking about this, sick of harping on it. So we're gonna move on to our last thing, something we all like: movies. I know mm-hmm. Keith is a big movie fan. So before we get you out of here, I have three movies I'm gonna ask you, and mm-hmm. which one should I watch out of the three if I have a choice? Either Dune. Power of the Dog or The Lost Daughter, Keith? Hit me which one I should watch first or not watch at all. Yeah, those are probably my top three movies right now, but I have not seen, God, have I seen any of the international nominees? I'm going to see Parallel Mothers in about four hours. And then (laughs) I think my wife and I are going to go see The Worst Person in the World tomorrow. So I'll finally be catching up. And then Drive My Car, which some people say is the best movie completely of last year. Uh, is supposed to hit HBO Max in about two weeks, which is good because I can't sit in a theater for three hours. Not that good. <laughs> not not now, not when I was younger, just never. I don't have the attention span. Anyway, of the, the temp- three- The temperature is too alt- uh, optimal in a movie theater now. At this yeah, point. that's it's true. Like it, it, it's a little too comfortable to be- Oh, in yeah, yeah. And with the seats, the way that they are at this point, yeah, there's no <laughs> shot. Between my wife and I, one of us would fall asleep, guaranteed, and possibly both, which is not what I'm looking for, right? At least here, if we fall asleep, we can rewind. <laughs> Believe it or not, of those three, I actually think Dune's my favorite. They're all great and they're all very different. I thought Dune was amazing. I was blown away. And I say that as somebody who loves the book and had very muted expectations for the movie. It was like, they can't, right? They just can't, right? Some some books are just too hard to adapt. And I thought it was great. It kind of beat all any, any expectations I had for it. The one thing I would say is in comparison to the other two, if you like movies with great acting, if you really want to see great performances, Dune would be the least of the three, right? Dune is more about story and setting. And a lot of it is just how great the movie looks. Uh, Whereas the other two all feature some pretty great performances. There in The Lost Daughter to me, I thought should have been nominated for Best Picture. I was a little disappointed that it wasn't. But just in terms of like pure entertainment value, enjoyment, Dune just again kind of blew me away I was really shocked how much I enjoyed that movie because like I said I figured going in is don't get your hopes up too much right nobody even loved a few people loved the original film version from David Lynch which I've still never seen and but having loved the book so much that I read all of the horrible sequels to it I was just afraid that the movie was gonna I was afraid it was gonna suck actually it was pretty great 
Love it. That's awesome. No, I agree. The visuals, the visuals in Dune were amazing. Mm-hmm. Power of the Dog was great. I love Benedict, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. I thought he was awesome. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen The Lost Daughter yet. But I'm going to do that soon. But I completely agree. And everyone I talked to that's read the book has said the same exact thing. They were worried and then they saw it and they were blown away. Yeah. Uh, so that's great. Keith, we don't want to keep you here any longer than we have. We really appreciate you coming on and speaking with us for a bit. And, you know, join us next week for all the latest on the lockout stuff. Hopefully we'll have a deal signed. I'm going to keep saying it every week until they do it. Um, but until then, uh, stay tuned and don't forget to get mesmerized. Get mesmerized, get mesmerized. Get mesmerized, get mesmerized.